Would you pray with me for just a moment? Our Father, we come to you this evening asking you to let your word once again in our hearts come alive. Let us, Lord, come before you acknowledging that the word of God is living and active and powerful. And it is our sole and only authority. It is our only source of information about what is right and what is wrong. It is the only authorized manual by which we are to live. And Lord, this evening I pray that the word of God would make its way deeply into our hearts, change the way we think, change the way we act, the way we speak, the way we behave ourselves in this world. We pray that you would penetrate our hearts deeply this evening. For the sake of Christ, amen. Turn with me to Romans chapter 13. And Romans 13 will just be kind of a launching pad for us this evening. And then we'll get into a completely different text in about 45 minutes or so. Hopefully now understanding that text before we ever get to it. Once in a while it seems prudent to speak to you in the form of a purely topical message. So you might think of this as a group shepherding session, so to speak. This is maybe not so much a sermon in the strictest definition of expositing a specific text, but we will make what I hope is a very strong biblical argument. It'll just take us a while to get there. I don't generally make it a habit to preach from the news uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, the Bible is much more interesting and secondly, the Bible is, is our only source for life and godliness. And if you just read the news all the time, that's depressing. So we don't do that. But on occasion, something in the news begins to burn in my own heart. And I know this is something I believe the Lord would have me share with you for the very specific reason that cultural Christianity tends toward multiple authoritative sources to determine how we're to believe, how we're to act on a, on a given issue. And And we seem to be very easily derailed when we read the news and we begin to see the Bible as merely one of several different authorities. And so my goal tonight is to remind us that there's only one authority which counts and has actual authorization from God, and that is the Word of God. Opinions don't matter. Politics don't matter. Political parties don't matter. What somebody says in the news doesn't matter. None of it is authoritative. In recent weeks, because our current Supreme Court could potentially overturn the 1973 decision legalizing the abortion of unborn babies, several states are now gearing up to be part of challenging that law. This year alone, nine states have passed bills to various degrees limiting abortion. Some are still being blocked in the court, but we have Louisiana and Alabama, Georgia, Kentucky, Missouri, Mississippi, Ohio, Utah, and Arkansas. Alabama voted to ban abortions altogether in almost every case. Most others have restricted abortion with so-called heartbeat bills that abortion is prohibited after a fetal heartbeat is detected six to eight weeks or so into pregnancy. And because of this, the pro-abortion advocates in our nation are coming out with venom and with fire. They're coming out with vitriol like we haven't seen in a long time. Now, my goal tonight is not to make the case that abortion at every level is murder, although we will definitely touch on that very strongly. My goal tonight is to reveal the spiritual heart of the pro-abortion advocate. Now, pro-abortion advocates don't like that term. They prefer pro-choice, right? Well, I'm not going to give in to that deceptive label because they are anything but pro-choice. 
They do not want babies to have a choice to live. They do not want you to have a choice as to whether you help fund abortion or not or live around abortion or not. So they're not pro-choice. That's a lie. That's a deception. But let me define for you a pro-abortion advocate as I'm referring to them tonight. A pro-abortion advocate is anyone who believes wholeheartedly that the abortion of a pregnancy is a reasonable and a morally good alternative for reasons such as inconvenience, lack of finances, youthfulness of the mother, the unwanted nature of the child, gender selection abortion, rape, or incest. And I'll deal with the threat to the life of the mother shortly. A great example of a pro-abortion advocate, sometimes they come in the form of individuals and often they come in the form of uh, organizations. A great example would be NARAL, the National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws. Here's their position. The right to choose abortion is essential to ensuring a woman can decide for herself if, when, and with whom to start or grow a family. We'll never stop fighting to protect and expand this fundamental human right. Now, of course, the problem with this is this says that we want women to live life without consequences, that sin shouldn't have consequences. Now, I want to be very clear about this. We would not at all, not at all, place all women who have had abortions into the category of the pro-abortion advocate because so many of them, and I'm going to assert the majority of them, have been tricked and pressured by pro-abortion advocates who have different agendas. They've been tricked by propaganda, by lies concerning the development and the humanity of a human being in the womb. The record of regrets and agony of women who have had abortions is endless. And so we wouldn't place those women in that category necessarily. Now, with the passage of many of these bills at the state level and the seemingly coming challenge of, uh, to Roe versus Wade, there's definitely a sense in which we should rejoice. And we should, that maybe the law will finally act in the way that God intended for it to act. And I want to speak to that first to, to start our thoughts off from Romans 13, because that helps us understand what government is supposed to do. Romans 13, and I'll just read the first four verses and, and make a couple of brief comments. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Since 1973, there have been somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 million abortions performed in the United States. Just for a little perspective, that's 10 times the Holocaust of the Jews. That's 150 times the number of Americans killed in World War II. And that's 1,000 times the number of Americans killed in the Vietnam War. But did you see from this text what God's institution of government is meant to do? Verse 3, rulers are not a terror to good conduct. Now, yes, we believe from Scripture that humanity is born into sin, but there is a moment in a child's life 
when a first act of rebellion takes place. The Bible says that early in a child's life, he doesn't know good from evil. Isaiah 7.16 says this. An unborn child literally has not rebelled in any form or fashion yet. He's the ultimate innocent citizen. Verse 3 says, Do what is good and you will receive the approval of the governing authorities. Unless you're an unborn child doing nothing more than growing. Verse 4 says that government is the rightful avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The government bears the sword, meaning that the ultimate evildoers are to be executed. Thus, unborn babies are treated as the ultimate evildoers in our society. A baby conceived because of rape or because of incest is executed as if he committed that crime. Now, Let me ask you a question, and you can agree or disagree. It's just a factual question. What would the United States likely do with another country which was murdering its own citizens at a rate of over a million per year? That's usually when we're sending troops, right? We're sending troops to defend the innocent. Well, now that some of these laws are passing and Roe versus Wade may be challenged, here's my question for tonight. This is what's been burning in my own heart Do we take this as a giant spiritual victory that the kingdom of God is finally advancing on the earth? No. We take it more as it's about time and about 46 years too late for 60 million babies. Laws protecting the unborn are good and godly and we're thankful for them, but laws don't change hearts. Laws don't make the spiritual problem go away. They're simply a means to protect the innocent from murder. We ought to use absolutely every legal and moral means at our disposal to stop the murder of the innocent. But we have to keep in perspective that changing laws doesn't mean that a spiritual revival is happening. And that's what evangelical America is going to believe. If Roe versus Wade is overturned, they're going to say it's revival. Christ is making himself known on earth. No, it's only when mass numbers of people repent and turn to faith in Jesus Christ. That's revival. The change in the law will not send one single pro-abortion advocate to heaven. Nor will it create spiritual change in our nation or in our world. So to put it this way, if the law changes, we just got back up to neutral. We just got back up to where we always should have been. And so what I want to do, I'm not a legal expert. I don't care about that stuff. I want to look at what the Bible says. I want to look at the spiritual issue that's behind abortion. And to get going tonight, I want to challenge you to listen critically and thoughtfully for the next hour or so, because what I'm going to do is immediately back myself into kind of a radical corner, and then I'm going to see if I can hold that corner and prove our case. So I'm going to make a statement, keeping in mind how we've defined a pro-abortion advocate. Here's the, here's the corner I'm going to back myself into, and let's see if we can back it up. A pro-abortion advocate cannot be a Christian. A pro-abortion advocate cannot be a Christian. It's not possible to be a pro-abortion advocate and be born again. There is no such thing as a regenerate pro-abortion advocate. And it's my hope to prove that point to you tonight so that we'll understand the nature of the spiritual battle that's, that's really raging, which will continue to rage whether Roe versus Wade is overturned or not. It'll keep going. Now, I do want to be clear, the pro-abortion advocate who cannot be saved is not our enemy. He's not our enemy. She's not our enemy. We're to pray for them. We're to have pity on them. 
We have pity on those that will stand before God guilty of millions of murders. I have to say this up front because as we reveal the spiritual heart of the pro-abortion advocate, it's not pretty. It's disgusting. And it might anger some. It might anger some of you that we would say these words about any human being. So if you'll be patient with me, I'm going to present my case And at the very end, I'll make my argument from Scripture, and we'll land very solidly in the bedrock of the Bible. So very simply, what I'd like to do this evening is reveal the spiritual heart of the pro-abortion advocate. And I'd like to give you nine qualities, nine spiritual qualities of the pro-abortion advocate. First, they are sufficient. They are sufficient. Now, what I mean by sufficient is that they're fully convinced of their own moral goodness, They're fully convinced that they are able to make a moral judgment, that they have the capacity, that they have enough information to make an accurate moral judgment. They believe themselves to be strong in spirit and mighty in mind. They are offering enlightenment and illumination to the world. They have no moral angst, no moral anxiety, no moral ambiguity, because they judge themselves completely morally right and good. Never mind that Romans 3.12 says that no one does good, not even one. The pro-abortion advocate has scrutinized herself, and I say her on purpose because the pro-abortion movement is led strongly and primarily by women. They pronounced themselves innocent, sufficient in their own moral goodness. And yet, what's the primary cause of abortion in the first place? What, what causes abortion? What causes abortion is a rejection of God's design for marriage and sexuality. This includes pregnancy outside of marriage. It includes rape. It includes incest as well. And we absolutely don't deny that there are terrible situations brought on by mankind's rejection of God's standards for marriage and sexuality. And and yes, abortions happen when women feel that they're in an impossible situation. But without the moral compass of Scripture to to guide them and without a belief in the sovereign care and the sovereign plan of God, then these women are are defenseless against the onslaught of deception that's brought to them by the pro-abortion advocates who say, legally, you only have three weeks to make this decision. Legally, you only have two weeks to make this decision. Legally, you only have seven days to make this decision. And so the pressure is brought forth. And we, as Christians, we're portrayed as those idiots who only have the Bible to go on. We're not progressive. We don't understand the suffering of humanity. We certainly don't support a woman's so-called right to control what happens to her own body. But the problem is, and the fact is, is that there is no other source for moral arguments. Since God is the source of all morality and the Bible is the singular source he's left us to know his mind. There is no other authority. We don't have the luxury of using our homemade morality. We don't have the luxury of using personal experience. Personal experience is subjective. It's not reliable. It's emotional. We don't have the the authority of using prevailing political opinions. Political opinions are always self-serving. They're always self-serving. You don't think that Planned Parenthood and other abortion clinics want to keep the money flowing in? This is a billion-dollar industry. Pro-abortion advocates, in their minds, are sufficient. They are morally adequate. Second quality of a pro-abortion advocate, they are deceived. They are deceived. And we'll get to Scripture in a moment. 
we'll work our way toward that, but I want to use some non-authoritative evidence because it is interesting, and then we'll get to the authoritative evidence. Science is not spiritually authoritative. Science can't tell me how to relate to God. Our spiritual authority comes from Scripture alone. But science can illustrate and show spiritual deception because a refusal to believe what is clearly true affirms with the and affirms what the Bible has always said, this is an indicator of deception, of being deceived, of, of having spiritual blinders on. Now I will point this out that both sides of the debate claim science is on their side, and that's why we never say that science is authoritative. But listen to what a medical doctor, Dr. Stephen McCurdy, says in his article, Abortion and Public Health, Time for Another Look. He makes the airtight case that abortionists are essentially ignoring the science of fetal development as the development of a human being. And to my knowledge, Dr. McCurdy doesn't claim to be a Christian. But he says this, quote, The biologic nature of the fetus is in the realm of verifiable scientific fact and admits but one answer. The fetus is a unique human life. To argue otherwise is irrational and deeply anti-scientific. I don't care if anything's anti-scientific, but it is irrational. Absolutely is. Basically and generally, abortions are available in various cases up to 24 weeks of pregnancy, depending on what state you're in. Which makes it very interesting that just a couple of weeks ago, a baby girl named Sabie left a San Diego hospital weighing five pounds, six ounces after several months staying in the hospital. She was born at 23 weeks after conception, and goes down in history as the smallest, tiniest baby ever to live. She's the size of an apple, and they brought her back. Sabi wasn't just a clump of cells. She certainly wasn't just part of her mother's body. She was a distinct, separate human being, a really tiny one, but distinct and separate. Eight, pound, eight, eight ounces, 8.6 ounces, something like that, little tiny. So they don't learn from science because they have blinders on. They don't learn from history either. Here's the classic pro-choice argument. The pro-choice argument is, I may be personally opposed to abortion, but my personal conviction should not affect social policy or law. In other words, non-judgmentalism becomes our highest ideal, that we are, we are tolerant to the point of intolerance. But did you know that in the 1800s, that was exactly the same logic used to support continuing slavery in the United States? In fact, those who opposed slavery still often said that they would not interfere with slave owners because they had the right to own slaves. And they wouldn't interfere. Why? Here was the reason they gave. Because legal precedent had already spoken. The law had already given what we ought to think. The Dred Scott decision of 1857 said that a black man or woman is not a citizen and therefore does not have rights as such. And so those who say they oppose slavery but wouldn't push back against it said the law has already spoken. That's exactly what pro-choice says today. They say Roe versus Wade has settled the debate. One writer said, quote, Roe versus Wade enshrined the morality of abortion. It's the same argument. But that's just the external evidence of spiritual darkness. They're deceived, but the truly authoritative proof of spiritual deception lies in their refusal to believe what the Bible says about a human life in the womb. 
when Rebecca was pregnant in Genesis 25, verse 22 says, the children struggled together within her. Darren read Psalm 139 earlier, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them do you notice how he defined himself in the womb me 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 i'm a person it's one of the few times in the bible when we hear the voice of one from the womb as it were god defines an unborn baby as a human being jeremiah received his commission from the lord Jeremiah 1, 4, and 5, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now we're going pre-birth or pre-conception. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. When was Jeremiah a prophet? He was a prophet when he was a cell. He was a prophet before he was conceived. The angel Gabriel told Zechariah that his barren wife Elizabeth would become pregnant with a son and, quote, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, Luke 1.15. This, of course, is John the Baptist, not a clump of cells. He was a human being filled with the Spirit of God before he was born. And, of course, our own Savior, Jesus Christ, is spoken of as a human being by the angel Gabriel before he was ever conceived. There's no debate as to what the Bible says about when life occurs it's an issue of not believing what the Bible says because of spiritual deception. How about this deception? The lie that a woman's body is her own. That's a lie. Because a baby is not a woman's body. Unless the baby is a girl, then that's a baby woman who deserves to live. But the woman doesn't get to kill her baby in the name of owning her body. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and those, that's people, who dwell therein. Humanity is owned by God because he is our maker. And the minute that little baby is conceived in the womb, it's owned by God. Pro-abortion advocates are spiritually deceived. They're oblivious to their own sin. They're oblivious to the horrors that they're forcing on these precious victims their consciences are seared after being party to millions upon millions of murders. Murders, they've become no better than the gas chamber attendants of the World War II concentration camps. They don't grieve their sin. They don't mourn their sin. They go home and they celebrate the money they've made and they go to sleep. They are sufficient. They are deceived. There's a third quality. They are haughty. They're haughty. Now, that's an old-fashioned word, but it, it works. It means they're pompous. They're arrogant. One prominent psychologist and author named Valerie Tarico, and I know she's prominent because her website says so, she writes about her vast expertise on the Bible. Quote, The Bible writers had no conception, no concept of conception, and no Bible writer values the life of a fetus on par with the life of an infant or an older child. This is an arrogant statement by someone who believes herself worthy to judge Scripture. 
David wrote famously in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, what does it mean, conceive me? Well, they must have just had some vague notion of what this is. I, I don't want to be overly detailed because we have many ages in this room, but the word conceived is the same word that you use of a female animal that's in heat, that's ready to conceive. In other words, he's saying that, that I was a sinner from the time my mother was in heat, if I'm going to be literal about it. David is saying is that as soon as mom did what was necessary to conceive, there was me. I was here. Again, not to be overly detailed, Job 10, verse 10, Job uses a metaphor, which you can look up on your own, to refer to the moment he came into existence as the moment his father gave his seed to his mother. The next verse describes his development in the womb, but he says very clearly that he came to be at that moment. So when pro-abortion advocates like Valerie Tirico, after a whole day of studying the Bible, claim that they've exhausted what the Bible says on the topic, that's haughtiness. That's haughtiness. A couple of degrees in psychology does not qualify you to exegete the word of God. How about the pompous, arrogant lie which says a small embryo is not the same as a nearly full-term baby? That's arrogant. That's haughty. Really? Then why do mothers who miscarry grieve so deeply? Why do they cry and weep? Some mothers who miscarry even have funerals. I'm sure they didn't have the years of memories and bonding with that child, but they grieve the, the loss of those memories, the loss of that bonding, the loss of what could have been. You can't tell me a small embryo is not worth the same as a full-term baby. And here's where it gets really dangerous. A couple of years ago, Kira Schlesinger published a book called Pro-Choice and Christian, Reconciling Faith, Politics, and Justice. She tries to reconcile being a Christian and being pro-choice. And she says that the idea of being pro-life is hypocritical since pro-life people are often also in favor of the death penalty. Now, I'm in favor of the death penalty because God instituted it in Genesis 9 and in Romans 13. And I'm in favor of preserving the lives of the unborn because God has proclaimed them innocent. Kira quotes a Catholic nun who says arrogantly, quote, I do not believe that just because you're opposed to abortion, that makes you pro-life. In fact, your morality is deeply lacking if all you want is a child born, but not a child fed, not a child educated, not a child housed. That's not pro-life. That's just pro-birth. How haughty and pompous is that? That's what's called setting up a straw man argument, a position that doesn't actually exist. No one has ever said, we want a child born, but we don't care what happens to them after that. No one's ever said that. No one's ever believed that. Even the title of Schlesinger's book is Arrogant. How arrogant to try to reconcile the, the Christian faith with human politics and opinion. We don't try to reconcile faith and politics. Our faith is derived from the eternal word of God and politics is derived from whatever's popular at that moment. And those two couldn't be farther apart. They are sufficient. They are deceived. They are haughty. Here's a fourth quality of the pro-abortion advocate. They are self-righteous. They are self-righteous. Pro-abortion advocates have no sense of a need to be made righteous by God. They've declared themselves righteous, 
because they condone the murder of babies in the name of what they've convinced themselves is this great cause that they call reproductive health or a woman's right to choose. Never mind that Romans 3.10 says that there is none righteous, no, not one. There's no fear. There's no desperation to seek after the righteousness of God. And these people act as if they're protecting women by fighting for so-called abortion rights. If Roe versus Wade is overturned, and here's what, they, here's what they say, women will still continue to have abortions. And this is true. Yes, they may be dangerous. They may be unregulated. But it's a lot less dangerous to women than the 30 million baby women who have been murdered since 1973. That's just in the United States, 130 million worldwide. We're, we're approaching numbers that our minds can't even fathom. But there is something that almost every woman who has an abortion could have done. She could have abided by God's standards of human marriage and sexuality. There would be no abortions if that was happening. None. In fact, the idea of an unwanted child is perverse. And it's promulgated by the same people who would bristle at the idea of an unwanted whale or an unwanted owl or an unwanted fish. Oh, they would run to the defense of those people. The people for the ethical treatment of animals, PETA, says this. It's just as bad to kill a deer, duck, or turkey as it is to kill any other animal because they also have families, feel pain, and are defenseless against rifles. That's another point for another day. But here's my point. What is PETA's stance on abortion? They don't have one and they won't have one because they can't have one. They can't. Their self-righteousness crashes into reality since they consider humans just another animal. And yet they won't defend the rights of a baby human to live. Pro-abortion advocates have created their own righteousness instead of measuring themselves against the only standard of righteousness, God himself. They're sufficient, they're deceived, they're haughty, they're self-righteous. It only gets worse. It's a fifth quality. They are merciless. They're merciless They're merciless to babies, and they're merciless to the mothers. They're merciless to the babies. The typical pseudo-compassionate, pseudo-pro-life position says, I am against abortion except in the case of rape or incest. First of all, that's just a a really scaredy-cat way of trying to ride both sides of the issue. But this is nothing more than executing a baby for the crimes of someone else. The same hypocrites who decry child abuse of a newborn infant would murder the same child if he was just a few months younger and still in the womb. Listen, when law enforcement catches a rapist and the rapist is convicted, he's not executed by being cut into pieces while he's alive. But that's what happens to the baby. The reason that they're merciless against the baby is is that they have no belief in the sovereign God. That God is capable of taking something terrible and turning it into something good and yet scripture is clear that god's involvement in human activity is total yet all without his ever touching sin isaiah 45 7 i form light and create darkness i make well-being and create calamity i am the lord who does all these things romans eight twenty eight, very familiar to us and we know that for those who love god all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes and of course, rape and incest are, are terrible crimes. But the most compassionate thing you can do for a woman who's been vic- a victim of rape or incest is to give them the gospel. 
and give them the hope that God will, in fact, use this for his glory and for her good. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ himself could look back to his family tree and he could look back to a woman named Ruth, who's a direct ancestor. Ruth was a Moabite who came from a people who exist because of incest, a young daughter being impregnated by her own father, Lot. That's a sovereign God, taking something that's unthinkable and turning it to something wonderful. And unless you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and submitted to him, you'll never understand that. So you can't give arguments from all around Scripture to a woman who's been victimized in this way. You have to give her the gospel and tell her that God is bigger than you can possibly imagine and he's going to use this in your life. Pro-abortion advocates are merciless to babies, but they're also merciless to the mothers. Most women who have abortions don't do so based on fixed, firmly, well-thought, ideological convictions. They do so based on being in an incredibly pressurized situation where the clock is ticking on how to make a moral decision which they're ill-equipped to make. They do so based on having been convinced and fooled to end the lives of their own children, all for the sake of personal convenience and the idolatry of self. Wouldn't you like to finish school? Have this abortion so you can get your college degree. Wouldn't you like to be rid of this situation? Get your abortion. Wouldn't you like, you're way too young. You're too young to be a mom. You need to just have the abortion. The massive and emotional spiritual damage done to those women who have been aborted, who have aborted their children is incalculable. And you don't ever hear about that. The only answer then to the pain is to sear the conscience and to pretend to be a big believer in abortion. Otherwise, you can't live with yourself. Dr. Joanne Angelo writes of her experience in working with mothers who have had abortions, and she writes, quote, In reality, however, her inner life is plagued by guilt and shame, nightmares of babies being sucked down tubes or dying in horrific accidents or violent crimes. She may seek medical treatment for insomnia and anxiety or medicate herself with alcohol and illicit drugs to to ease her pain. As time goes on, she may experience intrusive thoughts day and night, and flashbacks to the abortion experience may be triggered by such ordinary experiences such as a doctor's visit. She may become seriously depressed and even suicidal. And she goes on to list many documented effects of abortion on the mother's. Pro-abortion advocates don't care about this. Why? Because they're spiritually merciless. Now, praise God that God is a God of mercy. And he stands ready to forgive every mother who aborted her child if she would repent and come humbly to the throne of grace. And by the way, do you know what mothers who abort their children so often say? They often say, I would give anything to meet that child and tell him I'm sorry. You know, there's only one way to get to do that, and that's for the mother to come to faith in Christ and to go see that baby someday in heaven. But the pro-abortion advocates are merciless. Sixth, they are impure. They are impure. How deceptive and impure the pro-abortion advocate is. They use euphemisms such as reproductive health, reproductive rights, and women's rights, and personal freedom and choice, And these are all things that they're denying the unborn. Let me give you a couple of examples of how their impure hearts are so deceptive. First of all, they put forward the myth of the safe abortion. 
the safe abortion. They are unsafe for the mothers. Women's bodies still get mangled. Doesn't matter whether it's legal or not. Women's bodies still get mangled. 23,000 women per year worldwide die as a result of abortion. And 100% of the babies die as a result of abortion. How is that safe? That, that's mass murder on, on, a, on a global scale. Here's another deception. The deception of putting rape, incest, and the survival of the mother all into the same category. That's extremely deceptive. They are not in the same moral category at all. I've already addressed the rape and incest issue, the immorality of murdering an innocent bystander for someone else's crime. But what about when the life of the mother is in danger and abortion of an unborn child is necessary to save her life? Basically, that scenario almost doesn't exist. It is almost completely without any merit whatsoever. It's so rare. Even Alan Guttmacher, the former president of Planned Parenthood, he said this, quote, Today it is possible for almost any patient to be brought through pregnancy alive unless she suffers from a fatal disease such as uh, cancer, which is untreatable, or leukemia. And if so, abortion would be unlikely to prolong, much less save the life of the mother. Now, there is the case of the ectopic tubal pregnancy in which the fetus forms outside the uterus. This can cause the mother to hemorrhage and to die. But you know what? That precious little one wasn't going to live anyway. He wasn't going to live. There are rare cases of severe cardiac problems or cancer, but these are generally treatable without having to sacrifice the baby. Our own member, Jason Hellowell, diagnosed a rare form of gynecologic cancer in a patient who was 20 weeks pregnant. And a team of doctors worked with her to delay treatment until the baby could be uh, delivered. She was treated, she's cancer-free, and she has a toddler. What a great ending. I've been asked this. If I were placed in the situation of actually having to choose between the life of my wife or of our unborn child, what would I choose? Well, the Bible's already chosen for me. Genesis 2 tells me that I am one flesh with my wife that she is my ultimate priority, and as sad as it is, I would choose her because I choose her over everything else already anyway. That's already the pattern. And we trust the Lord and thank the Lord that the precious little one is with him. But essentially, this is a mythological situation so rare and yet is presented as some sort of regular occurrence which is supposed to scare us into keeping abortion legal. Dr. Bernard Nathanson of the American Bioethics Advisory Commission wrote this. There are no conceivable clinical situations today where abortion is necessary to save the life of the mother. In fact, if her health is threatened and an abortion is performed, the abortion increases risks the mother will incur regarding her health. It's actually more dangerous. Pro-abortion advocates are sufficient, deceived, haughty, self-righteous, merciless, impure, the seventh quality, they're violent. They're violent. In a 2010 book, they just released a new edition. The book is called Unplanned by Abby Johnson. She's a former director of a Planned Parenthood clinic that provides abortions. She described her horror at the first time that she actually witnessed an abortion of a 13-week fetus when she stepped in as an ultrasound technician. Now, an ultrasound abortion is performed with the help of ultrasound technology such that the technician can actually see what's happening in the womb. 
Her description is so detailed and so graphic that I won't read it in its entirety, but I'll read you some pieces of it. Quote, I was expecting to see what I had seen in past diagnostic ultrasounds. Usually I'd first see a leg or the head or some partial image of the torso, but this time the image was complete. I could see the entire perfect image of the baby. Just like Grace at 12 weeks, I thought, surprised, remembering my first peek at my daughter three years before, snuggled securely inside my womb, only clearer, sharper. The details startled me. I could clearly see the profile of the head, both arms, legs, and even tiny fingers and toes. Perfect. My eyes still glued to the image of the perfectly formed baby. I watched as a new image entered the video screen. And then she goes on to describe the instrument introduced into the womb, which would end the life of the baby. And from her description, she learned to her horror that, first of all, this is extremely painful for the mother as well, tears streaming down her face. Abby Johnson had been taught by Planned Parenthood that the fetus cannot feel pain. But what she learned right then and there is that he can. And she watched as the little one tried to run, tried to get away, and couldn't. And her description of what they did to take the baby is so grotesque. I can't even believe, I can't even comprehend that one human being would do that to another, much less 35 times per day, which was the clinic's quota. What does the Bible say about humanity in an unredeemed and sinful state? Romans 3.15, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Did you notice the reason that they're violent? They're violent because they do not fear God. They're at war with God and they don't care. They're violent. They're sufficient. They're deceived. They're haughty. They're self-righteous. They're merciless. They're impure. They're violent. There's an eighth quality. They are persecutors. They're persecutors. They hate those who would stand for the life of a child. Just the other day, a little 13-year-old girl was making a speech at her junior high, and she was shouted down by the adults because she was saying that life begins at conception. They're persecutors. They hate those who would stand for life. This isn't an academic debate. This is literally a matter of life and death. And yet the pro-abortion advocate speaks in vitriolic terms when referring to the Christian. Stephen Morris of the Freedom From Religion Foundation, in his article entitled Abortion, Why the Religious Right is Wrong, he writes that Christians pursue the pro-life agenda because they hate and fear women and will torment women at all costs. Pro-abortion advocates horribly mischaracterize and persecute Christians in their aim. What's their, what's their goal? Morris writes that Christians must fade away which in history is always the step before making Christianity illegal, which is always the step before executing Christians. You think, well, that's a long time ago. That's happening today in many countries, 160,000 times a year, in fact. Let you know who else they persecute? They persecute the father of the child. They persecute the other person who should have a say in the life of the baby. The lie that, that presents... Abortion as a choice a woman has over her own body is persecution against the fathers. That baby has the DNA of two people, not just one. Abortion can often be the cause of divorce, especially when it occurs without the father's knowledge. 
The fact that the father basically has no legal rights over the unborn child puts him in, in a horrible and helpless position. One man's wife aborted two children without his knowledge, and when she finally had a third child, the couple divorced, and she won custody of the third child in what is just a bitter irony. Even a young father with a young teenage mother will often desire to make a life with his spontaneous family to to make that life work. It's been well documented that these fathers suffer from depression, nightmares, guilt, traumatic reminders on Mother's Day, traumatic reminders on Father's Day, traumatic reminders on the anniversary of the abortion. They're traumatized seeing the child the age that their child would have been, not to mention the numbers of fathers who commit suicide because they're overwhelmed with grief or with guilt. They're persecuted. They are sufficient, deceived, haughty, self-righteous, merciless, impure, violent, persecutors. And finally, they are revilers. They are revilers. A reviler in Scripture is one who uses abusive and controlling and violent speech, which is a predictor for actual violence. 1 Corinthians 6.10 says that revilers will have no part in the kingdom of heaven. If I had time to go through the 34 or so times that the English Bible uses the term reviler, we would make an airtight case that a reviler is an abuser, one who uses power to control and to dominate one who is weaker than himself. And by the way, whether they like to admit it or not, do you know what belief system is a proponent and a supporter of revilers? The false religious system of evolution and natural selection. What's the catchphrase for the evolutionist? Survival of the what? Fittest. And since according to evolution, a a human being doesn't really have inherent value, and since they value survival of the fittest, then abortion is simply the natural and logical outworking of that belief. Since I'm bigger and stronger than you, I can kill you. And that's the ultimate form of abuse, isn't it? Well, I've backed myself into this terrible corner. I've said that a pro-abortion advocate cannot be a Christian. They cannot be regenerate. It's not possible to be a pro-abortion advocate and be born again. And we have to make this assertion now because the battle lines are changing. It's no longer the Christians disagreeing with the pro-abortion advocates. Now you have the pro-abortion advocates claiming to be Christians. I've said that these are the spiritual heart qualities of the pro-abortion advocate. They are sufficient, deceived, haughty, self-righteous, merciless, impure, violent, persecutors, revilers. They cannot be believers. Now, is Pastor Steve just in a bad mood and feeling mean-spirited? Or is this the standard of Scripture? Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5? In Matthew 5, Jesus begins his famous Sermon on the Mount by giving the qualities of a kingdom citizen, the heart condition of a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So can we make the case that a pro-abortion advocate cannot be a Christian because they're sufficient, deceived, haughty, self-righteous, merciless, impure, violent, persecutors, and revilers? Can we make that case? First, the pro-abortion advocate is sufficient They judge themselves sufficient and morally upright. But Matthew 5, verse 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Christian is insufficient. He is poor in spirit. There's no goodness. There's no morality to offer God. The pro-abortion advocate is deceived. 
They're oblivious to the horror of the murders they condone. They're seared in their conscience. But Jesus said in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The Christian has had his eyes open to his own sin, and he mourns and he grieves his sin. There's sorrow. There, there are great tears of anguish over sin. The pro-abortion advocate is haughty. They arrogantly claim the moral high ground, looking down on any who would try to save the life of the children. But Jesus said in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The Christian is small and insignificant before God, and we know this. The Christian says, according to Psalm 115:1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. The pro-abortion advocate is self-righteous. They have no need to be made righteous by God in their own minds. They've declared themselves righteous because they condone the murder of babies in the name of what they've convinced themselves is a great cause. But Jesus said in verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And that righteousness is only available through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, in the Savior alone, we might become the righteousness of God. The pro-abortion advocate is merciless. They kill with impunity. They kill with liberality. They execute babies in a way that it's illegal to execute convicted convicts. But Jesus said in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. That's the heart of a Christian. The pro-abortion advocate is impure. They lie. They're dishonest. They're deceptive. Their motives are purely selfish. But Jesus said in verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The Christian doesn't come to God because he has a pure heart. The Holy Spirit gives him a pure heart with which to know and to worship Jesus Christ. The pro-abortion advocate is violent. They are swift to shed blood because they have no fear of God. They are, according to Romans 5, at war with God. But Jesus said in verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. They, the, the Christian has made peace with God by repenting of sin and receiving the free ga- grace of forgiveness. We've made peace with God. We're no longer at odds with God. The pro-abortion advocate is a persecutor. They persecute all who would defend the defenseless. They're not willing to take a stand for the law of God. They're not willing to take a stand for the righteousness of God. But Jesus said in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Christian stands with Christ even unto persecution because we look ahead to the kingdom. And the pro-abortion advocate is a reviler. They revile and abuse precious little ones by the millions because they're bigger and they're stronger. But Jesus said in verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all, and other all kinds of evil against you falsely. On what? On my account. The Christian takes the low position of being reviled for the sake of Christ. Do you understand that the pro-abortion advocate is the textbook definition of an unbeliever. And in fact, he or she fits right into what Romans 1 says about the one who would shake his fist at God. 
Romans 1.28 says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. When somebody says to you, I am pro-choice and a Christian, you say you can be one or the other. You cannot be both. And for the women who have had an abortion, forgiveness is available. It's free. And the only way you'll ever meet that child is to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And for the person who has performed abortions, the pro-abortion advocate... You're guilty of murder on a mass scale, but God is willing to forgive you just as Jesus asked his father to forgive his own murderers. God's grace can outrun your sin. And for the Christian who has waffled in your heart on this issue, forgiveness is available to you and you should be right before the Lord. We don't waffle on this. We do pray that the law will change. We do pray that the innocent will be protected, but changing the law will not determine a new eternal destiny for anyone. The gospel must be applied. Here's what will change the destiny of all who are lost. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Amen. Our Father, we come to you now asking you to continue to write our hearts so that we might think biblically in all things. We ask you, Lord, to be reminded that the Bible and the Bible alone is our source of moral authority. That it doesn't matter what the prevailing winds say. It doesn't matter what popular politicians say. It doesn't matter what we see in the news. That we must judge what is in our world by the only objective source we have of truth, and that is your word. And Lord, even in a church our size, I know I know that there are those that have been impacted at one level or another by the horror of abortion. And I pray for them. I pray for your grace and your kindness and your mercy. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to continue to think biblically, to think rightly. We do pray for those who are really at the top of the list of those who are seared in their conscience and and wicked in their pro-abortion advocacy. I believe it would bring you great, great glory to bring them to heaven. I believe it would bring you such glory to bring one who murdered to meet face-to-face the ones he murdered and have all of them glorying and celebrating at the throne of God together that your sovereign plan worked such amazing things that we could not even fathom. And so we pray for their salvation. I pray for the church of Jesus Christ. I pray for our church that we would keep a clear head about this and not mistake a faulty social gospel of the change of a law with the real gospel, which is the change of a heart. And that's what we would pray for, for the salvation of the lost, that you would continue, Lord, to save many. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.